Thank you, music team and Rich, for serving us so well, like you guys always do. <clears throat> well, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the fall weather. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I know I took a poll last week, I think. Maybe it was two weeks ago. And there are some of you that actually like it hot. Yeah? Yeah, some people are nodding. I feel that's, that's, the fall weather hasn't convinced you that it's, it's better in a, in a cooler state. All right? Well, uh, We've, our family got out and kind of enjoyed this weather on Friday. Uh, as you, many of you know, I take this, that day off to spend some time with my family and get things done around the house. But uh, this Friday, we woke up and we decided to spontaneously go out to breakfast downtown. So we got the kids ready, we buckled them in, and off we went on our 15-minute drive, not very far, to you know, downtown to eat some breakfast. And after we ate, we took a leisurely walk down toward Percival's Island. Anybody ever taken that walk before? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. It's pretty. Then we packed everything up with the kids and the van and the strollers and everything. And we, we got them all back in the van. We drove 15 minutes back home for lunch. Now, let's pretend that as we were unpacking the car, Mary just sort of looked over at me and calmly said, Clay, the Lord really protected us today on our drive. I would say, uh, well, yeah, that's, that's definitely true theologically. I mean, it's, it's, the Lord's always protecting us, right, in, in what we're doing. And, but if, I have to be honest here. I would, I would have been thinking, well, I mean, it was pretty uneventful. We didn't almost crash or anything. Like, I, I mean, sometimes that's true. We all, the Lord really does protect us from my driving. But uh, <laughs> at least not this time didn't appear. At least it wasn't obvious. So I would have been thinking, well, why, why did that come to her mind right now? Well, Mary didn't say that, and you're probably thinking, this is a weird introduction, okay? Mary didn't say that, but at least not at that moment, but she did scream, okay? She did scream. I was in the yard with the kids when I heard it, and uh, I came running. She was unloading the van and had the back seat about halfway up, and perched on the seat was the biggest black widow spider I have ever seen in my life. No joke. I read in one article that the venom of a black widow spider is 15 times more potent than a rattlesnake. And I didn't know that at the moment, thankfully, but I did know that black widows are bad news, okay? So you don't want to mess with those guys, or ladies, I guess. I heard they eat their husbands, too, so I'm not really sure how that works, but that might be folklore. Victoria, you're going to have to dial me in here with your background. So I killed the spider. And after that moment, Mary and I saw with crystal clarity that the Lord really did protect us on our drive. You see, the issue wasn't our understanding, or the issue was our understanding of the depth of the problem that we had. The reality versus what we thought. For the entire drive, we failed to perceive the danger that we were actually in. And as a result, uh, I was a little bit ho-hum about the God that actually kept us safe on the drive. And especially our children, who sat right next to that spider, really over it. And today, we're, we're transitioning to chapter 2 of Ephesians, as you can see on the screen. And Paul does something really similar for us here. He helps us understand something that's always been true about us, 
something that's very alarming and unsettling and that we've likely failed to realize, or at least we failed to realize to the, to the depth that he's about to take us down. And that's exactly how bad off we were before Christ saved us. How bad off we were before Christ saved us. Paul knows that if we don't grasp how evil and helpless we were, we won't fully grasp the glory of what he has done and will do for us in Christ. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And think about this. For the entire first chapter of, of this letter to the Ephesians, Paul's been telling us about how blessed we are in Christ. I mean, it's over and over, various ways. He's in, in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, how blessed we are in Christ. We've received every spiritual blessing in Him. He even prays for us to understand the extent of the, the blessings that we've received. In, uh, in verses 15 through 23, especially the, the power of God that's at work, that's been at work in our lives. He wants us to see that power. But he knows that in order for us to see the extent of God's power, to see the beauty of our salvation, he must provide a contrast. He must provide the dark reality of our former condition. The darker the night sky, the brighter the stars shine. Have you experienced that? Well, our condition before Christ is about as black as you can get. Paul knows that if we begin to grasp how evil we were, how hopeless we were, how incapable we were at saving ourselves, how undeserving we were, then and only then will we begin to grasp the great glory of his grace that he just told us about and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. So to help us grasp this, Paul's going to provide some contrasts in this chapter, and all of chapter 2 really. We're not going to cover all of chapter 2 today. But there's, there's, really, there's really two basic contrasts, if we're going to big picture here. He says that, that we once, in this initial contrast, Paul says that we were once spiritually dead. And we were producing only evil as a result of that. But now we've been made alive in Christ to produce good works. That's verses 1 through 10. That's the first contrast. Then in, in a second contrast, he'll say that we were once Gentiles who had no part in the promises of God made to Israel. But now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's just a summary of verses 11 through 22, the back half of this chapter. But in both of these contrasts, Paul's goal is that we see the spectacular glory of what God has done. The glory of what God is doing and the glory of what God has promised to do, what he will do for us in Christ. So today we're going to dive into this initial contrast. And Paul describes us as, as once spiritually dead and now made alive. So we're calling these next few sermons uh, from death to life, as you can see on the screen. Today's part one, and we're going to examine the, the black widow, if you will. Um, what's true about us, what's always been true about us before we came to Christ. We're going to look at how evil and helpless we were before our conversion. And to help us see this, Paul is going to give us at least uh, five descriptions in this text. He's going to give us five descriptions of our, our helpless state. 
And I say at least five descriptions because you could probably pull more out of these. But I just stuck to the main ideas here as he lays them out in this text. So five descriptions of our helpless state or our desperate condition, as it says on the screen here. Let's go ahead and read before we jump into these descriptions just so you can get your bearings. Let's read uh, all the way through verse 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what we're going to cover today, but I want you to notice where he goes. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he'll go on and and describe more of what we've been given in Christ, and we'll cover that um, next time. So there's five descriptions in this text, and the first one we can really highlight is is obvious. We were deceased in sin, or dead in sin. Spiritually deceased. Paul says in in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now as Paul begins to describe what we were, uh, he doesn't ease us in. You know, it doesn't take us into the shallow end of the pool and then start slowly working us into the deep end. He throws us right into the, to the deep end. He uses one of the most graphic metaphors that was available to him. He doesn't say we were diseased. He doesn't say we were sick. He doesn't say we were hurt. He doesn't say we were stuck. He doesn't say we were asking for help. He says we were dead. We were entombed. We were deceased, like I've said in the outline here. Now, I know we've got some med students here, but in particular, I want to talk about Brent for a minute. Imagine going with Brent to the med school and looking at one of the cadavers that he works on. Well, maybe for you. I just saw you. I saw saw what you said. I don't think it would be awesome. I think it would be horrifying. Um. But that's what Paul says we were before Christ, like a cadaver. It's pretty graphic. And it's important to remember that that death is always associated with God's curse and his judgment. Our first parents thought that, that they would get knowledge, Adam and Eve. They thought they were wise apart from God. But outside of God, there's only death. So don't be deceived. There's nothing there's nothing good in sin. But Paul wants to highlight something in, in this, using this metaphor. He wants to highlight our absolute inability to do anything for ourselves. He's highlighting our absolute inability to do anything for ourselves. The human race was once alive, but we entered into death when we chose transgressions and sins. We're now unresponsive. We flatlined. And we've been pronounced dead. Now, you might be thinking, dead? Like, oh, no, I've sinned. But I don't feel, I don't feel dead. I feel alive. 
right? I mean, that, well, Paul says that, that our deadness is actually manifested, ironically, in the way we live, in our lifestyle. Notice what he says, the transgressions and sins in which you once walked. The walk idea is, a, is another metaphor. He's taken that from, from the Old Testament as a, as a metaphor for life, how you live your life. The fact that you lived a lifestyle of sin, of, of, of unbelief, of transgression, that, that tells on you. Okay? It tells you that you're really dead on the inside. In other words, if you weren't spiritually dead, you wouldn't live that way. The fact that you are dead is why you sin. And so even if you had a fairly clean past, think about this. Paul says elsewhere that that if any of our actions aren't motivated by faith in God, by faith, if any of our actions or intentions or anything we do isn't motivated by faith, it's sin automatically. Romans 14, 23. And if that's not enough, the standard that God has set for us is complete and total devotion for Him. You should love the Lord your God with what? Say it out loud. Yeah, that's, that's Hebrew shorthand for absolutely everything. Okay? You've got to love Him with all you've got. And that's the standard. That's what this God demands and deserves because of who He is. There's no other options. And so, that's the standard. So ask yourself, if you've lived that clean life, has, or to you, has every thought, every attitude, every action of your life been motivated by faith? Has been driven by a desire, a devotion to God and, and His purpose? Well, the answer is not even close. Not even close. In fact, before Christ, Paul says none of it was. None of it was. You weren't able to because you were dead. And that's the first thing Paul says. And these, these, these phrases are going to build on each other here. That we were literally dead men and women walking around in sin. We're dead because of sin. And that death manifests itself as our lives are characterized by sin. But that's not all he says about our, our former condition. He says that we were part of the system. Part of the system. He said, we lived our lives, in verse 2, following the course of this world, or according to the course of this world, depending on what translation you have. But that's the idea, following this, the course of this world. Now, my next few descriptions, 2, 3, and 4, all go together. So, I want you to be thinking about the connections between these. But, Paul here says that we, we lived our lives according or in conformity to the world. Or to the worldly age, that would be another way to, to describe this. It's literally to the age of this world, or we could say the worldly age. What he means is that we march right along to the flow of this world. We imbibed what the world says is valuable. We pursued what the world says to pursue. We admired what the world says should be admired. The idols of our culture were our own gods. We adopted them to be our own. They were our own objects of worship. We may have even gone to church, but what we really lived for were other things. What we, what we really uh, were devoted to 
what we really obsessed over, what we really structured our lives around, was what the world held out to us. Things like the American dream, wealth, the security that comes from that, endless pleasure and ease, i.e. hedonism, individualism and self-help and self-care and self-anything else, the UBU thing, relativism, tolerance of, of, of every stripe and everybody, saying there's no ultimate truth. These are all currents of our culture. But they've all got one source. And these things pulled us along. Paul says here that we were unknowingly part of the evil system. That we were marching blindly toward our own destruction as a result. And that raises another question. Well, how, how were these worldly influences so powerful? How were they so unavoidable? Well, the next two descriptions are going to give us some insight. Paul says that the world is animated by a very great power, by Satan himself, and that we were once his pawns. We were his subjects, his pawns. We were the pawns of Satan. He says we were following the the course of this world, but he also says we were following, in the back half of this verse 2, we were following the prince of the power of the air. Another description, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we're following the prince of the power of the air. Paul describes Satan here as the ruler of an unseen kingdom. The ruler of an unseen kingdom. He's the prince, as the ESV translates that, or just literally ruler. He's the prince of the power or domain or kingdom. That's the sense of this word power from the ESV. It's a domain or a kingdom. The prince of the domain of the air. Emphasizing its, its unseen nature. A little side note. Okay, historical background. Always helpful. Uh, Ephesians and other people would have been, uh, they would have thought about the air and even Jews in Paul's day is the, is the domain of demons. Okay, It's kind of that, that area right above the earth and that, that controlled the earth in a lot of very fundamental ways. So the idea that, that Paul's driving at here, the point is that he, he rules a particular domain. Satan does. And that's the unseen spiritual world that's controlling the culture and all that goes along with it. Satan rules that domain. In other words, the, the world has, a, has such a powerful evil influence because of the one who controls it. Satan. And kind of bound up in this idea is you could, you could talk about like Satan and his hordes. Okay, So he has a kingdom and a domain of, of demons that, that are at his bidding. But it's not merely that Satan influences the culture. He does. But he also influenced you and me directly. Notice how Paul describes him in this next clause. He says, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this spirit, another description of Satan here, is now currently working in the sons of disobedience. Who are those sons? Well, the people that are are set on disobeying Christ. Notice what what he says next. Okay, maybe it's those over there. No, among whom 
we all once lived. You hear what Paul just did there? He grouped everybody in this class of sons and daughters of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. And that's massive for a Jew like Paul. Think about that. In his Judaistic background, if there was anybody that lived a squeaky clean life, it was him. And Paul's saying, we all once lived here, and we were all part of the sons of disobedience. So what's his point? We were totally held captive by Satan. We were his pawns. We were not merely part of the culture. We were part of his kingdom or domain. We were his subjects, his citizens. The one who is intent on destroying our souls. And as a result, we blindly carried out his will as we participated in sin. And as the great deceiver, he has convinced humanity that they are autonomous. That no one's controlling them except their own free will. And that's what we thought too. But not according to Paul. Satan was working in us. We were his pawns. We were unwitting slaves before our conversion, supporting the works of darkness in this world. Sons and daughters of disobedience, seeking to subvert God's purpose. So are we merely the victims of the evil world and its diabolical ruler? Well, we're certainly his victims, but Paul goes on to say that they had a willing participant. We were, Paul says, prisoners of our flesh. Prisoners of our flesh. Notice he says in in verse 3, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind." So we all once lived among these sons of disobedience. And, and how did we live? Paul tells us. We lived in the, in the passions of our flesh. And in carrying out those desires and passions. So it's not like we're being forced against our will. We're not being forced against our own desires to serve Satan's purpose. We may not have known that we're serving Satan's purpose, but we're willing participants in sin. Paul says here that we lived our lives in the passions of our flesh. He's saying that our inmost selves churned out idolatrous desires. We produce lusts from within us, out of our flesh, and out of our thoughts. We then, he says, acted on those desires. We carried them out. And I think his point is that we can't ultimately blame Satan and the world, as powerful as they are. We only have to look inside of us. We crave, we love, and we produce evil. We crave personal significance. We crave glory for ourselves. We fantasize and pursue sex. We crave pleasure and comfort. We long for money and security. We pursue power, and we will sin greatly to get these things. We will lie, we will manipulate, we'll dominate, we'll connive to fulfill our desires. And Paul here says these are the desires of the flesh, outside of Christ. 
You have nothing but flesh. As sanitized as they may be, it's still, it's still flesh, idolatrous at its core. Paul's point is that we're fundamentally responsible, that we're prisoners of our own flesh. We can't blame it ultimately on Satan or the world, claiming innocent victimhood. And now, I said that these last, these three, these, these descriptions, two, three, and four are connected. I want us to think about how they converge for a minute. They're all working together, and at its bottom is the desires of self. Okay? So to help us maybe think about this a little more clearly, I came up with a pretty bad illustration probably. It's going to fall apart at multiple levels. So I'm just, this is just a disclaimer because you can poke holes in it. But imagine that we, were, uh, we committed a crime and we were sent to prison. So the prison itself would be like the world. Okay? The materials of the prison are steel, rock, the hardest resources. The walls are sky high. It's impenetrable. It's on an island. It's below the, below the earth. It's in a, you know, the doors are bolted shut outside and inside. Or maybe there aren't even doors. You know, like you're just in there. There are chambers inside of us and, and chambers inside those chambers with more locks. So the world, you're in it. You're locked up inside it. And if that's not enough, it's being guarded by the most powerful warden there is. And over a million guards who do his bidding without question. And the warden hates you. He desires to see you die and never allow you to see the light of day. He has, and he has the guards to, that are fully committed to him to carry out whatever it is that he wants to do to you. And beyond all that, when we, when we actually get to you in the prison, you want to be there. Somehow you've been deceived that this really is your best prison. That this really is your best life in prison. That the, the suffering that you're experiencing, the, the, the fact that you're headed for the electric chair is worth it. That it makes, it makes sense to you, but it really doesn't make sense. But that's how you live. It's what you think. It's what you desire. If the warden left, if the doors were unlocked, if the beams of sunlight and freedom were shining in your face outside of Christ, you would stay in the prison. You would stay there. But why? Why would we not leave if left up to us? If you gave us a choice, why would we stay? Well, because Paul says in this next phrase that we were corrupt from birth. We were corrupt from birth. He says, and we were by nature, by nature, or from birth, Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature, by birth, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were this bad in ourselves, by nature, from the start. We were conceived in this kind of evil, says David in in the Psalms. That's why nobody has to teach kids how to sin. Nobody had to teach you how to sin. And Paul's image for us here in this, in this phrase is that we were corrupt children who deserve punishment, who deserve the wrath of God. 
Now, from our vantage point, that's hard, even though we innately know that justice is good. There's a murderer on death row who knows he's committed the crime. Everybody else knows it, and the judge permits him to go free. There's something inside of you that cries out, that is not right, except when you're the murderer. And that's what it means to be children of wrath, to be by nature corrupt. God's wrath isn't the problem. It's not uncontrolled or unjust. It's not like man's anger in any way. It's an outflow of his goodness for, against creatures who have rebelled against that goodness and chosen evil. And this choice happened when our first parents rebelled. Our most fundamental nature was corrupted and then passed down to all of Adam's descendants. So Paul says we are all corrupt from birth, every single one of us, the whole mankind. And this is really important to know. Why? Well, we often think that our sin is what corrupts us. Like our baseline is morally neutral. And then you sin, and then all of a sudden kind of you're corrupted as that, and then you need forgiveness for that sin, now you're back in the neutral zone. Well, that's not what Paul says here, outside of Christ. Our baseline was corruption. We sin out of our natures, like we saw in the dead in sin part. We don't merely need a few sins wiped away. We need to be remade from the inside out. We need to become new creatures with renewed natures. Now, that's a pretty bleak picture. Uh, Go back to our first illustration. It's the black widow. It's the reality of what's always been true about us. And it is unsettling at first glance. Paul says we were spiritually dead in sin. We were unresponsive to God. We were unmoved by His glory. We were unmoved by His goodness, unaffected by His warnings. We were part of the evil world system, marching along to the beat of Satan's drum. We were pursuing idolatrous and treasonous desires, and we did all of this because by nature we're corrupt. We were enslaved and deceived, and we didn't want it any other way. So, what's Paul's motive in dragging us through all this? It's redemptive. He knows that we've got to get a glimpse of the evil, of the barriers, of the difficulty of our salvation, if we're going to see the glory of it. Christianity is a paradox. It's you, go, you come and you hear about how bad you are and it makes you rejoice. You know, it's kind of like, oh man. Because why? Because we see the glory of the grace of the one who loves us. This passage helps us see a couple of things. It helps us see the glory of God's grace and power. It provides the black backdrop to the sheer brilliance of God's mercy, to the depths of His love. What we're going to see, what's going to, this pastor is going to go on to say, is that God initiated your salvation from start to finish. And the only reason He did it is because He loves you. And He wants to display that love in you, to you, toward you. 
And he's going to lavish you with kindness for eternity. He's going to raise you up to sit with his son and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. It's stunning. Sheer grace. And it also shows us his power. He overcame our deadness with new life. He overcame the evil forces of the world and Satan by installing his king, Christ, remember? Far above them, like we saw last week. He forgave all of our treason and provided us with new natures in Christ. And it makes sense now why all of the New Testament authors describe this as a new creation. The same power as the first creation is happening within you. So that's amazing, and we're going to get to that in in a couple weeks. Rich is going to be teaching for us next week, but we'll take that week, and then the following week we'll look at the back half of this passage. But I want you to see something else this is doing. These verses also help us get a realistic picture of human nature apart from Christ. This is so, so important. It confronts our pride. It confronts our self-reliance. It confronts our constant desire to make ourselves seem better than we really are. It exposes the lies that we're tempted to believe about ourselves and others. So what are, what are some of those? Now don't immediately dismiss some of these, because I think we all believe them in various ways. Deep down, I'm really a good person. If I can just get down to the core me, there's goodness down there. I know I've developed bad habits and tendencies, but with a little work and discipline, a little self-care, I can get back to who I really am, a good and, and wholesome being. It's like putting new clothes on a leper. It's not going to change one thing. And Paul actually says the opposite here. Deep down, we're really not good at all. We're the opposite of that. I'm not as bad as other people. Okay, so I may sin and struggle in some areas. I mean, don't we all? To err is human. But I've never had a period of drastic rebellion, like this text seems to be indicating. My sin is less severe. Okay, so what does that imply? Well, that I'm, maybe I wouldn't say it, but I'm somewhat better than others. I'm more savable. I'm more deserving of grace. Wasn't that hard for God to save me? I mean, other people have a, wow, they have a mighty testimony, but not me. I grew up in the church. There's pride in there. Paul says here, you were just as bad as Hitler. Maybe not on the outside, but on the inside. You weren't less dead than him or anyone else. Think about that, gradation in death. There's not one. You might say, well, well, I didn't do the things that Hitler did, so I can't be that bad. Well, in one sense, that's true. I don't want to just totally flatline everything. But have you ever asked yourself why you didn't do that? Why, why not? If you think this, it's because you're good somehow, that's wrong. It's because God was gracious to you. That's why. God, in his sheer mercy toward us, has built in all kinds of restraining influences into this world. Our parents, the government, laws, teachers, 
bitter consequences for sin and our consciences. Those things are God's gift to humanity to restrain the resident evil in your heart. If you say it differently, your heart hasn't been able to manifest the level of sin to which you're capable of because God has restrained you in your unconverted state, growing up in a Christian home. If he were to lift that restraint from you altogether for one second, if he, if he would have given your flesh and Satan and the world full authority, you would have made Hitler look innocent by comparison. So don't fall prey to the subtle lie that I'm not as bad as others. Number three, I sin because of my circumstances. I sin because of my circumstances. Well, if I wouldn't have been put in this stressful situation, if she wouldn't have hurt me like she did, did you hear what she said about me? That's why I'm bitter. If I wasn't so type A, I just wouldn't have this problem of like running people over all the time. I would be better. What are you saying? I sin because of my circumstances. My circumstances are causing me to sin. Well, Paul says here that you can take away every circumstance, but you're still going to be faced with your corrupt heart, your spiritually dead nature. We sin out of our nature and not the other way around. It's so important to see that because there's hope on the other side. Last one, I can trust myself and my desires. I can trust myself and my desires. That's a lie. And this is the baseline assumption of the world. And it plays right into Satan's schemes. If what Paul says is true about us outside of Christ, then we should be the last person that we trust. Our lens are busted up. They're skewed. The way we see the world is way off. So following my heart might, might sound good, but it's actually really bad advice. Instead, Paul would have us to be very skeptical of ourselves. Since outside of Christ, all we have is deadness and corruption. So, don't believe the lie that you can trust yourself and your desires. And finally, we'll see this more in a couple weeks. A passage like this drives us to the only solution for humanity. The sheer mercy of God. We must cast ourselves exclusively upon His mercy. We must lead other people to cast themselves exclusively upon His mercy. To experience this realization of our deadness and to experience the power of God in genuine conversion. We need to be remade. We need new life. Other fixes that are offered to you are not fixes. Self-help won't help. Self-care is not the answer. Abandoning yourself is the answer. Abandoning yourself to the Christ who is full of mercy and who actually has the power to remake you. And we're going to see that if you've done that, if you've trusted Jesus, and you heard the gospel, and you believed in him, it's because this mighty power has already been leveraged for your benefit. And if you haven't, you can today. So we invite you to that. If you have questions about that, if some of this is unclear to you, please, please come talk to us. If you hear the shepherd's voice, you're resonating with what we're saying right now. Even though you've maybe never made a profession of faith in Christ, please come talk. Um, the shepherd himself may be calling you.
and uh, we want you to avail yourself of him. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these verses to your church about what we were so that we might see the glory of what we've received and to live in light of that today. And uh, we're going to see that in the next few weeks. So um, I pray that you would just, as we meditate on these verses, produce the fruit of humility in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name.